Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. We are starting the show today talking about health care. And just a short time ago, it was announced that TELUS and the Medical Services Commission of BC have reached an agreement, a settlement over concerns of non-compliance with the Medicare Protection Act. We also heard from Health Minister Adrian Dix answering questions about what this actually means. They're making modifications to their program. We've worked together to see those modifications made. And this uh, uh, demonstrates the value of the Medicare Protection Act. This is not about um, punishing people. This is about providing services for patients. And it's with patients in our mind's eye, with all those people who need health services in BC that we've uh, been acting. This action was taken by the Commission to protect patients. TELUS and uh, the Commission have come to an agreement on that. I think that's great. And, but my priority is to deliver services. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Richard Zussman, Global News Journalist in Victoria. Richard, thanks so much for taking some time. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. That was actually an answer to one of your questions at the news conference. But can you back up a little bit and explain yeah. exactly what does this settlement mean? Yeah, so what it ultimately means is that TELUS now needs to amend its TELUS Plus program, but those that are enrolled in the system, they can maintain that partnership with their family doctor. And TELUS Health is a program that TELUS has been advertising through TELUS Health, in essence, for people to pay a subscription, a membership service, to get access to the healthcare system. Complaints had been brought forward to the minister last year. Uh, those were forwarded on to the Medical Services Commission, and they investigated that, filed an injunction against TELUS in December of last year, and ultimately the decision today is a settlement based on that injunction. A determination was made, Jill, that TELUS was breaching the Canadian Medicare Act, that they were providing service for pay that should have been provided through medical service premiums. Uh, ultimately, what happens to TELUS, though, and I asked about that as well, they face no penalty. Those individuals who paid for the service, who in essence bought access to a family doctor, get to keep that family doctor. TELUS will continue to operate TELUS Health, which is an essential part for us. TELUS Plus only represents still a very small fraction of the virtual healthcare services that TELUS provides and the in-person services TELUS provides. And ultimately, they will continue operating the rest of their health division, the same as it was before, aside from the TELUS Plus program that can no longer take enrollees, but those that were in the system kept to keep their family doctor. All right. And I heard the, the health minister say that because to not keep the people that are already in the system, it would just put a whole bunch of people out who had a family doctor today and maybe wouldn't then have one tomorrow. What I was a bit confused about, though, what does that mean, though? So if, if you're in, a, in the TELUS Plus, the Life Plus yeah. program, you have a family doctor, you keep going to that family doctor. Is it just different now how TELUS is billing for it? So in essence... Next year, when your dues come up, you don't have to pay anymore. There, there will be no more TELUS Plus program happening. But those services that you received through TELUS Health, primarily a connection to a family doctor, those services will continue. And it, and it is confusing, and it will feel to some that this is queue-jumping. But to the point you made, the minister said, well, we don't want to send a bunch of people out there uh, who were at the time doing what they believed they had the right to do uh, back in without a family doctor. And Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, told us, following the press conference briefly, we chatted that this is not about the patients. This is about TELUS and this is about the Medicare Act. And they don't want to punish patients who have a right to access health care. And it's going to feel to many that this is queue jumping. They paid for the access, they got the access, now they don't have to pay anymore, and they still have the access. To that, the minister says, well, we're committing to changing the family doctor model, we're committing to adding new family doctors, we're committing to get more people attached. We want everyone in this province to have access to primary care, but we know we're a long, long ways away from that. And was it specifically the types of services in that? Was it yeah. primary services that they were billing for? And I didn't get the impression he, he said that they were double billing, saying billing the patients directly and then also filing under MSP. But was it that they were billing 
for services that were covered by MSP that, that weren't supplementary yes. services? Exactly. And it was funny, Jill, because I asked about this and a few others. Are you saying here that TELUS broke the law? And ultimately, the answer is yes. They were offering services that should be provided as part of the Medicare Act, as part of MSP. They were charging people for those services. Nobody has come out. You know, the government hasn't come out and said that. The Medical Service Commission hasn't come out and said that because they've reached an agreement, a settlement, right? They don't have to appoint blame in that regard. But based on what we know in terms of all of these moving parts, they were charging for services that should have been provided for all British Columbians equally through uh, the Medicare Act that, that uh, is it overrules, that, that regulates our, our health care system and, and the payment for health care uh, in this country and in this province. So, and I think what what will will stand out there, and and I don't know that you have the answer or if this even came up today, but is that not also exactly what the Copeman Clinic was doing? In which yes. case, the province took them to court and effectively shut them down. So the province took Telus to court, and ultimately they've reached a settlement. Copeman Clinic came up today as well. There are other issues where the province continues to take clinics. To court, uh, it is going to be something the province continues to do. They will file injunctions. They will take um, people to court. In this case, TELUS has such a valuable role in our healthcare system. I'm not sure, Jill, we fully even understand how essential TELUS health is to the operation of our healthcare system. Um, this was only a small part of that, but this is ultimately what happened. They were there was an injunction. There was going to be court dates, but the settlement was reached before it ended up in court. And, and some clinics want to fight and push. Uh, Telus Health ultimately decided through the settlement, we're going to back off Life Plus. We are going to, that program will no longer exist uh, in terms of offering um, services for money. Uh, and we will move on with the other Telus Health offerings that we provide. Right. Unless you're already enrolled in <laughs> Telus Life Plus, in which case you can continue operating the way it was before. So you get to keep your doctor which is largely the reason why people were doing this. But what other additional services come with that, TELUS will have to determine because the TELUS Plus program can't take any enrollees. They can't offer services for pay, so they can no longer charge people. But if you've already paid and you have now a family doctor, that family doctor can't, in essence, fire you. Uh, that, that doctor continues to provide the service. The question now is, Jill, do doctors retire? Do they leave because... Uh, you know, what was the compensation model like for them? That is going to be something we're going to have to watch very carefully because obviously that could have long-term repercussions in terms of the number of doctors operating within our system. But the understanding from the health minister is those doctors will continue to practice. They will continue to see their patients. Only some of their patients are Life Plus. Some of their patients are telehealth. Majority telehealth. So, yes, but there are those people out there who paid a lot of money for health services and they will continue to get them and they won't even have to pay any more for it. All right. And and as far as TELUS Health itself, yeah. that's going to continue as well, won't it, as far yeah. as virtual appointments yeah. and people who are accessing health care through TELUS Health? And I know there's a lot of listeners out there who have TELUS Health. Nothing is going to change on your end. And TELUS had threaded in December that if this injunction went through, maybe it meant a big impact on TELUS Health and people would lose their doctors. That doesn't seem to be the case here based on the settlement. There was agreement in place here that TELUS Health will continue to provide those virtual and in-person health care services that so many British Columbians rely on. So that service uh, will continue based on what we heard from the minister today. All right. Did, did it come up at all in that? I know TELUS is the big one. And like you said, yeah. I think we, we underestimate just how much of a role TELUS Health plays in BC's healthcare system and delivery. Did it come up at all? I mean, it's not the only one. Maybe it's the biggest player, but there are other clinics and, and fee for access yeah. clinics. And yes, they might be supplemental services, but I, I, but I know there are also places you can pay to get a doctor and a lot of the things that you're, you're getting done, you can then submit to your healthcare plan. Did you get the sense is the province going to go after these or they're paying more attention to these now yes they are paying closer attention but a lot of these complaints these investigations are are based on patient or public complaints so if people bring forward these issues the province passes those on uh, to the medical services commission and they start investigating these instances because we've heard the stories in vancouver and victoria all over the province 
where family doctor's offices open up and say, oh, you have to become a member. Oh, those aren't for the regular, those are for additional services. But everybody knows it's in essence paying to jump the line to access a family doctor. There's demand here. Almost a million people in this province aren't attached to the family doctor. And that number continues to grow, uh, largely due to population growth. We'll see how the province can deal with that issue with the changes to the payment model. But yes, they are actively going after these clinics, these doctors, to ensure that there are not fee-for-service models in place, because that is clearly a breach of, of the country's Medicare Act. All right, Richard, thank you so much for joining us and walking through the details of this. Appreciate it. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Joe. It is Wednesday afternoon. That means it's time to check in with Claire Newell, as we do every Wednesday at this time. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. You know, I have not been paying attention to news over the past couple of days, but I don't know how much you have talked about if it's been overkill. But on Monday, when uh, the proposed overhaul of Canada's passenger uh, rights charter, it's it's been on my mind and I thought we should talk about it. Yeah, We have talked about it, but I'm glad you brought it up because I do want your take on it because we've heard from the National Airlines Council who said this isn't a good deal. We've heard from yep. the minister who says this is great. It's going to close the loopholes. The NDP critic says this is not going to close any of the loopholes. So there's certainly a difference of opinion out there. Oh, it is just a mixed bag of reviews. You're right. And at the end of the day, there's what the government is trying to do in theory is that put um, all sorts of penalties for airline violations and they actually increase them tenfold. Um, uh, the airlines can be charged up to $250,000, which was that tenfold increase, and put all the regulatory cost of complaints on carriers. Well, you know, you and I have been chatting about the fact that right now, um, the backlog of complaints that the government is trying to deal with is about 45,000. And that's just going to climb because of the, the strikes that are happening right now. And they're saying ab- about 18 months on average per case. So that it's a terrible situation. And so much of this was caused by the the travel demand coming back so quickly and all the staff shortages and the fact that um, the the airlines, the airports, no one was quite ready for the fact that they couldn't staff up. Um, And then, of course, we had those winter weather periods. So it's kind of that perfect storm, which is why there are so many many complaints backlogs at the moment. One of the interesting things that I think has come out of this, I, I mean, it's so much to tackle, Jill, but... At the end of the day, one of the things that, that uh, you know, there's lots that we can pull out was that they are hoping that this legislation would demand that airlines institute a process to deal with claims and respond to complaints within a decision uh, or have a decision within 30 days. I mean, that would be unbelievable. So the onus would be on the airline to actually do that. And you and I chatted about, I think, months ago about the fact, wouldn't it be great that they, they have all the details? They know credit cards. They know everything. They, they could just automatically, if, a, if it's a viable reason and everyone on that aircraft had a certain delay of a certain length of time, it qualified for that refund, boom, everybody just got paid. Hopefully, that would maybe um, kind of push this to the forefront to, to have technology be able to do that. Um, what is unclear, though, at the end of the day, is the fact that there's always been these kind of three categories. There has been things that are with, uh, outside the airline's control, things that are within the airline's control, and, of course, safety. And instead of the flight disruption categories, what's going to happen is that the Canadian Transportation Agency is going to draft a list of exceptions for compensation. And that's going to include, it has to include, things like safety. And bad weather. I mean, some people don't agree with that. But at the end of the day, I'm not flying on a plane if it's not being cleared <laughs> for safety. Right. <laughs> um, what's what I think people aren't liking is the fact that there is this gray area behind that we don't know. Was it really safety? Was it really you know, um, or, or or what really was the issue? We can tell if there's inclement weather we had that we we saw it from december 17th to the like 28th or whatever of december of this past year we know that it can happen and nobody wants to be flying when you can't deep de-ice a plane um but i think that there are some critics out there saying that it would be really nice if there was more transparency so i i think the the idea is to help protect passengers 
the reality is, is that if you put all the onus onto the airlines um, and for things that an airport, perhaps luggage, wasn't processed through an airport properly, perhaps the airport that they were landing in, uh, where you're flying to, had something on the uh, on the airstrip field and there was a delay in you landing. What There, there are so many factors when it comes to travel that they're going to have to have a, a long list of exceptions in order for the airlines not to be charged through the yin-yang and us being charged ultimately as consumers. Right. And that was one of the concerns as well, that this will lead to tickets to to the price going up for passengers because airlines will pass it on. And like you said, if you look back at what happened at YVR in December, it wasn't just the airlines. It was crews on the ground. It was gates. It was snow removal. It was a whole bunch of different factors. Oh, exactly. And so I think that the Canadian Transportation Agency, CTA, who is going to be writing this list of exemptions for compensation, they are going to have to have it very clear. The government is going to have to see, the the airlines are going to have to see, but it's going to have to take the airports as well. And they all have to work together to have something that is fair and clear, but also keeps the consumer in mind. Because at the end of the day, you, what we're what everyone is looking for is that the airlines have an incentive to brush up their service and reduce the number of grievances against them. And so that's not going to just take airlines. That's going to take a whole lot of other organizations that are within travel. So, yeah, I think, I mean, the ultimate goal, I understand the theory behind it. I think it's far, far more complicated than putting all the onus on the airlines. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to see exactly how that kind of plays out as we learn more about that moving forward. I wanted to talk about this story as well, because I think anybody that travels, if someone said, hey, would you like your experience getting through the airport to be faster and more streamlined, would probably say yes. And Alaska Airlines is trying to do that. Yeah. And so what's been interesting about watching this little story, um, not a little story, it's a major story, but it's a little airline. Um, and what's cool about it is that it actually travels uh, airlines, the, the airline flies out of YVR. So many people here in BC have flown Alaska, they love Alaska, and they use it. So um, what they're hoping to do is be one of the most modern, at, at least as far as the, custo- the customers see it. And they're doing a massive, massive investment, $2.5 billion in technology. And you know, you know, when you're putting in new technology, it, it can, it, it has um, its ups and downs. And they are starting this though, and at their hubs. So that will be in mainly Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, LA, and of course Anchorage, Alaska. And it's the whole goal is to reduce the waiting time for passengers arriving for their flights. So, you know, when you go and you wait and you are checking your bag and it's, you wait there and then sometimes there's kiosks, sometimes you have to wait at um, stations, whether it's bags, a separate station, there's all sorts of things. So what they're hoping to do is eliminate that. And when the, from the time you get to the lobby to the time you get to security in five minutes or less, and it's all going to be using um, tablet technology. And you'll likely be doing this with um, recognition of your 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 facial recognition. Um, they haven't come out with the, the specifics of that, but this is this is going to be quick. They're they're hoping that you will even tag your bag. The way that they've they're organizing this, so they they are saying it will. You know, like I say, a, a guest face will be involved. I know some people aren't comfortable with that. I am. I'm a Nexus card holder, and I will never get rid of my Nexus. Um, but you'll have your your ID and. Um, your bags. And from there, it's a streamlined process. So it'll be in stages, but it'll be neat if you're flying Alaska and you you get to take advantage of this. It'll be interesting to see how this changes because they're hoping that this will be by the end of 2023. All right. So not too, too far away at no. all. Uh, let's talk a little bit to uh, even uh, an even smaller airline, Lynx Air, but an expansion happening there. Yeah, and an expansion that's actually going to affect Vancouver because this ultra-low-cost carrier, Lynx Air, again, one of those ones that really has kind of risen post-pandemic. They have been doing a lot of flights out of Montreal, and on uh, June 23rd, they're going to be starting Montreal-Vancouver nonstop, which is fantastic timing because, of course, kids are getting out of school. So if um, Montreal has been on your bucket list, there are going to be some unbelievable deals. I took a look on the Lynx website. Uh, There are few and far between, but they start 
one way, $69. Ooh. Wow. It's pretty cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, it just might be something that if, if you are looking, again, it's introductory fares, so you kind of have to be flexible and then kind of peek around. They're not going to last long, um, and, and some of the, the prices go up maybe $10, $20, $30 from there, but some very, very good fares in the marketplace. All right, and uh, that's some good news. The next story, though, not great news, potentially, if people are planning trips to European uh, destinations. So, you, yeah, you and I have chatted about the fact that um, my worry this year was was always going to be staff shortages, but also um, unrest and labor unrest and action. And we have seen that. We've seen that uh, in Germany, Spain, Italy, France, of course, um, there's going to be more that more uh, talk of uh, of a day or even more strikes in France. All that does is it ultimately leads to major chaos for for travelers. And uh, I do see strikes affecting travel this summer. So if Europe is on your agenda, it could be um, in the way of delays. I don't think it'll be cancellations, but it could be. But I I expect that there could be flight disruptions for sure because of this. It may affect taxi cabs, it may affect buses and trains. So whenever you're planning a trip, when, and a lot of people are starting to head to Europe now, please look where you're going and find out what's happening. Typically they're giving you dates of when they're having their strikes and you'll know, but it's, it is concerning and it may affect your trip. So just rem- remember that if you have Europe on your agenda this summer. All right. And one other story maybe before we get to, to the deals. And this is something I know uh, there are always a lot of questions about why airlines overbook flights. And one particular airline is going to be doing that to more flights. Well, it's going to be really interesting to watch this one because there was so much talk years ago. Remember when people were being removed violently off planes because of overbooking and they were told that they couldn't go? So Delta Airlines is has said come out saying that they're going to start overbooking more flights um they typically do they typically are around two three percent depending on the airline they always have people just have no shows and so still occasionally you'll hear people uh, being asked will you voluntarily accept the next flight and for compensation. And I I hope people remember that I always tell people don't take the first thing because um, they will always up the ante if they're not getting takers. And if you don't take a voucher, take cash or a ticket and and ask for a business class seat on the next flight, you just, you go for it. Um, But this will be interesting to watch because there is a very fine line between overbooking and you know, an under booking. So right now they are currently at uh, 103% on available seats on every flight. And they're considering increasing it to 104 and eventually to 105% if it doesn't cause major disruption. So if you happen to be on Delta and you hear that they're asking for volunteers, um, they have previously offered, I, I put this on my note to you, anywhere between eight and 10,000 in some cases, very hmm. rare for it to convince passengers to voluntarily change their flight. So that is not the right balance, right? So <laughs> no. they're going to have to find a happy medium. All right. Uh, interesting. Yeah, we'll have to yeah. watch that one for sure. All right, let's uh, get to the deals. What do you have for us today? Well, um, the first one is something local here in BC. So many people love to do this. So it's a Kelowna wine getaway that's valid from now right through until the end of October. Two nights hotel, breakfast daily, a wine tour with the transportation so you can partake and not worry. Um, $3.99, taxes of $61. A reminder, that is per person based on two sharing, like all of the deals we always uh, mention. Um, Honolulu, Hawaii, cheap, cheap in the fall. September the 26th. Well, I don't want to say cheap, cheap because it's still, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. to to many people, Um, but it's cheapest I've seen in a long time. That's why I got excited. So (laughs) September 26th through until November 28th, airfare and seven nights hotel from $7.99, taxes of $4.51. Now, I did look. um, If I was looking at air only and not doing a package, I saw uh, an airfare for almost $800. Hmm. So that's a good buy. Um, Seven night Alaska cruise. I want to mention this one because if you book by May 4th, which is coming up quickly, it um, has 
an exclusive up to 200 US dollar onboard credit. So this is a seven night Alaska cruise sailing round trip from Vancouver. There are dates between June 28th and the uh, 20th of September, $539 taxes of 440. And just looking in Vancouver at the, you know, mid July, say one night in Vancouver, I couldn't find anything for like under 350. It's pretty expensive. So this includes your accommodation, meals, and entertainment. So it's a, a good buy for a seven-night cruise. All right. Uh, if you want to quickly do the last one, this one is a European vacation too. It is. And um, I just want to mention Europe has been very expensive, the air especially. So anytime you can find a package that includes air with a company, say, like WestJet Vacations or Air Canada Vacations, you're probably going to be getting a better deal. Plus, it's all planned for you. Anyway, this is at uh, three cities in Italy, Rome, Florence, and Venice, June 18th through until September 23rd. It includes the Air, three nights hotel in Rome, two in Florence, two in Venice, breakfast every day, all of the train travel between the cities, all of the sightseeing, and airport transfers. It's not a group tour. It's just an individual and it's nineteen ninety nine taxes of eight fifteen. All right. Claire, thank you so much for this and we will talk Thanks, to you again yeah. soon. Yeah, talk to you next week. We are uh, taking a look at what is happening in Surrey. We've talked many times about crowding in Surrey schools, the need for more schools in that city. And now there is a concern about the number of portables that are going to be needed with the population that continues to grow in Surrey. Earlier this week, we spoke with Terry Allen, a school trustee, also uh, somebody who has been on the Board of Education in Surrey since 2002, uh, currently vice chair of the board. He's also been the chair of the budget committee and this is what he said about the number of portables. We have 361 portables with the expectation of moving to 400 and we've got 39 portable moves. Well people need to understand that portable, the cost of portables comes straight out of operating. So all those millions of dollars that we've spent on portables should actually be going to the classroom and this just simply uh, aggravates the situation to the point that uh, we cannot continue to afford to buy portables out of operating and uh, without some drastic uh, change to the way we do our budget. Well, joining me now is Rani Sangara, member of the Cambridge Elementary School Parent Advisory Committee. Rani, so good to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for having me back, Jill. We have talked so much about portables. Now there is this idea of potentially stacking portables to deal with student enrollment numbers and lack of space. What are your thoughts on that? Well, as a parent, it's totally not acceptable. Uh, We've been talking about um, portables for years. Even um, we were talking about being in portables during COVID. Um, There are so many things that... Um, having a portable just isn't great for students. There's no hand washing stations. Um, portables, there's not enough washrooms for children to go to. Uh, just safety. Um, you know, portables are outside. Um, kids need to go to the washroom. And so anybody could be back there. We've had an incident where there, there was somebody back there. Um, winters, they're cold. Summers, it's too hot. There's no ventilation properly in them. Um, it's just, you know, as a parent, uh, I'm very concerned at why nothing has is being done and why instead of taking portables away we've added another 60 since um the ndp has taken over i mean let alone at cambridge elementary we have 13 portables and and how has that number changed or as far as 13 there has that stayed pretty steady or have there been portables added at cambridge as well nope there's been portables added and they usually add them probably every other year or if not every year. Um, You know, we started off at seven, then, you know, they came to nine and it just keeps adding. And we just added um, two, two new ones, just not last year, but the year before. Hmm. And, you know, so it goes back to as a, as now I'm talking as a taxpayer, um, you know, where's our money going? We we need better schools for our children. Um, You know, we're looking at, you know, housing is going up everywhere. But no schools are going up. So how is the city planning that? And why is the government not looking at the fact that Surrey is the largest school district? 
we should be having these these conversations more often. Like, you know, even the school board trustees are saying they shouldn't be taking money out of their budget to put portables on just because the government's not making new schools. It should be, you know, the government should be looking at this problem and accepting the fact that they, instead of building new schools, they need to put money or give money to the school board so that they can help with these um, portables. Right. And like we heard from Terry Allen there, that is all money that could be put into the school programs that could be put into direct schooling, but instead it's being spent on portables. Yeah, 100 percent. And I don't think parents know that. And I feel that, you know, as a government, NDP, they should come to the table and be like, okay, you know, why are schools not going up where there's housing going up? Why is it why does it take four to five years for them to build an elementary school or a high school? You know, how do they decide where the expansion is going to be or where a new school has to go? You know, if you almost every school around Cambridge is totally packed. We have close to, say, about 770 kids in an elementary school. And, and so we've got almost, I think, four or five elementary schools going into one high school. Right. And, and that's a lot of students, even, even looking at kind of what school classrooms look like and the size of schools. That's a lot of students in one school. That's a lot of students. And, you know, and, and during COVID, we had to split them to go outside because it was just so many students and they've actually kept that now because it's worked better. So we have two lunches, two recesses and, you know, but just talking about that, there's so many other things that, that the city and the government need to look at Um, housing. Like I said, infrastructure is not there. They're, you know, at the point where instead of having a, a better solution, they're just deciding, okay, we're just going to have to stack them now because what happens is when you put a portable at a school, that takes away from the playground. That takes away from um, the kids being able to go outside and run around and have more space. Um, And so if you have like 770 students and you're already taking up all that space for them to be playing, where are these kids going to be going outside? Right. And, and like you said, they're, they're already in that kind of the, the staggered time for going outside. Are there any, have you heard of the, this idea of the stacking, the portables? Is, is it being done in any scenario that you've heard of already? No, we haven't heard any of that. But, you know, the way that we're hearing as the school board uh, speaking about how we're already going to be adding almost, it's almost going to be 400 um, portables in the next few years. So they're, they're looking at their budgets. There is no way. I mean, why are the students suffering um, from cutting back other things that they could be having? Like they're saying French emergence could, could disappear. They're saying there's other, you know, um, schools that like they, there's so many programs that they could lose. And, and that doesn't go, that, that shouldn't be, the, the kids should not be suffering on that. I think the government needs to look at the fact of, okay, where is this, where, first of all, yes, money is a problem, but where is that money going to come from? And how, how are we going to find a solution instead of always catching up? Like we're already four or five years behind. I mean, there should have been an elementary school that they were going to build um, close to Cambridge and, and just up the, up the street from us, which has delays, delays, delays. So that's another four or five years for that. Right, because like you said, we've talked about this in the past, and this is something that's been going on for years that the schools have been overcrowded. So what is it, or do you hear what it is that's causing these delays or why these projects are being delayed? No. All all we hear is, you know, they're um, doing surveys and then they have to um, find people that are going to be building the schools, or there's always something I feel... um, that is always holding them back and for, and why it takes them so long to realize that this area needs a new school. I mean, if you look at it, if you're working with the city and the city is giving um, out, you know, it's an okay for them to build houses here or duplexes here, or, you know, even all these little small townhomes, are, are they not thinking that where are these kids going to go to school? That if, if we're building a brand new community here and all these houses are going up, shouldn't there be a school there so that those kids can go to those schools? And, and mind you, these houses also have basement suites. So, right. you know, it's just not planned. Like, I mean, um, we're not, not sure why the city and, and the provincial government 
are not working together to realize that maybe, you know what, maybe the housing has to cut back and so more schools will go in. Yeah, it does seem, and, and we see it in other places too, certainly Vancouver with with Olympic Village and the different areas where there's been huge amounts of housing, but there have been promised schools, but the schools still, for whatever yeah. reason, haven't been built. Uh, you mentioned some of the issues with portables as well, and, and the fact that the ventilation, hand washing, that kind of thing. Are they getting any better? Are they the same portables that people might remember from years past, or are they getting any oh, better? Yeah. No, they're the same box that you get. And um, there's no, and you know, with 13 portables, we have one washroom outside, and it's it's it, there's no planning. Yeah, you can you can pop a portable anywhere, and okay, ready to go. But then, are are you looking at if you're adding more portables, are you adding another washroom? You know, I I hear of, of students holding their holding um, their washroom so that they don't have to go there or they don't have a chance to go, and you know, they're holding it all day. Or they're not washing their hands before they go go to eat or, or, you know, they need to go do something. So it's just not, nothing's changed. It's just a box that, that they put on the ground. Right. Do students, is it too far or do students, can they not access, go into the main building even just to use washroom facilities? Well, mostly they would like them to have it where they're using the washrooms outside because those are the ones allocated for the portables. You know, mind you, they're not always working, um, so they are going inside. But then, you know, they're also there's also kids inside that are using those. So it's it's just not um, feasible for everyone to to be, um, to, you know, to be at the school using the washrooms. And this is not the the washrooms; it's also the hand washing stations. I mean, all through COVID, we were talking about this over and over and over again, that why are there no hand washing stations or, you know, why is the filtration system not great in portables? And we kept getting the runaround. It was like, you know, it takes, um, first of all, too much money. Second, the pipes can freeze up outside. Um, You know, there's just so many things that, and and now we find out that the budget, actually the money comes from the Surrey School Board, which affects again the students i mean that the government should be looking at that right so at this point do you see any end to this or any change at any point no i feel like we're all we're going to be doing is is catching up unless the unless the the provincial government sits down with the Surrey school school board and they and they also sit down with PACs and they sit down with dpac and they and they figure out what the problems are and how they can get the solution faster because I just like I said we, sh- we shouldn't have even been talking about this this should have been like four or five years ago we were told that oh there's going to be no portables in schools anymore right. and that alone I mean instead of taking away portables they've been keeping adding portables all right. Well, Rani, we are going to continue uh, looking at this uh, as well. But I thank, uh, appreciate so much. And thank you for coming on the show and talking more about this. Thank you, Jill, for having me. Have a great day. You too. Earlier today, we heard from Canada's Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino, saying that Ottawa has now signed a contract with the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Ammunition Association, saying that this is the first step in launching the firearm buyback program. The role of the CSAAA will be to work closely with vendors who have this existing inventory to facilitate the process of surrendering, compensating, and ultimately destroying or deactivating uh, these firearms so that they can't pose any threat. We're going to be very transparent about what the costing is around the buyback program. I'll have more to say about that as we lay out this um, initiative stage by stage. The RCMP and law enforcement are a vital partner in this and would also point out that uh, police associations, uh, the chiefs of police, have come out in favour of the assault-style firearms ban. All right, those were some of the comments made earlier today from the Public Safety Minister. Well, joining the show now to talk more about this is Daniel Fritter. He is the owner of Calibre, that is Canada's largest gun magazine. Daniel, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, we've got to stop meeting like that. <laughs> yes, so, well, uh, yes, but I don't think as long as you will continue to agree to this, we probably, probably won't. Uh, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on this contract, as well as the comments that you just heard from Marco Mendicino? Um, well, 
I, I, my understanding is that the CSAAA, which is the, for those listening, is the gun industry organization in Canada, um, which I, I'm, I'm not actually a member of, which may surprise some folks. Um, my understanding is that the, the consultation they're doing is, is primarily was intended to be information finding thing, um, which makes total sense when you consider they represent all of the gun retailers and distributors and that the government would approach them and say, well, what are the inventory levels and relative values of these firearms at industry? Um, that, that would be something the CSAAA would, would do normally. Um, so I think that's what the $700,000 contract is for. The, the, the bit of a cheeky part is that I also know that um, having just conversed with the CSAAA not a couple hours ago, they haven't done any of this yet. Um, that 11,000 gun figure, they have no idea where they came from themselves. I have a, a bit of a suspicion, um, but they have no idea where that figure came from, and they certainly haven't collected any information. They were simply approached by the government and asked to basically come up with inventory levels and um, relative values for these guns, um, specifically only at an industry side. They were never asked about about guns in private hands. So um, it's it sounds like a bit of an announcement that might be kind of um, putting the cart before the horse, as it were. Right. And when you when you say you don't know where that number came from, but you have your suspicions, what are your suspicions there? Um, unconfirmed, and that's where I'll say caveats all aside, journalistically and whatnot. There's about 100,000 AR-15s in the country. Um, and again, for those that don't know, AR-15s in Canada have to be registered. So every single AR-15 um, that the government's looking at buying back because of they're literally only looking at buying back the ones in legal hands, are registered. Um, and it, it, when they say 11,000 guns being bought back and you do the math on 100,000 guns in civilian hands, it, you kind of go, well, it makes sense about 10,000 of those would be in, in industry between warranty centers and retail and distribution. Um, and that gets you at that 11,000. So I, I suspect what happened here was the government approached the CSAAA, said, help us find out how many guns are out there and what they're going to cost us. The CSAAA, representing the industry, said, yeah, we're happy to do that and represent our membership who pays for this exact service. And then days later, the government said, well, we actually know there's 11,000 that you guys have. So we're going to make this announcement. And and to be to be incredibly clinical, I, I kind of expect that this is going to end up being tied into the NDP's announcement of um, an amendment to C21 that it directly goes after the gun industry. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about that as well. And uh, this is something that NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said yesterday, and he said that it is time to start targeting gun manufacturers in order to protect Canadians from violence. And he said this has never been done in Canada before, but it is necessary to keep people safe. There's been attempts to have lists or, or definitions, but it, they don't target the manufacturer. So what we're proposing are laws that are going to directly be targeted at the manufacturer to, to make sure that they can't use loopholes to just change an element or change uh, a particular um, characteristic of a, of a weapon. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, like I said, I think it's all related. Um, I think this announcement today... To, to cut straight to the quick, uh, I think the announcement today is basically trying to set this organization, CSAAA, up um, to be forced to say, no, we're not cooperating, because the CSAAA's membership are the gun industry, and, and that's who they are effectively beholden to. And all of the gun industry is now saying, what are you talking about? Why are you cooperating with the liberals who are effectively putting my entire industry out of business? Mm -hmm. um, so the entire industry is now attacking the organization that represents them. Um, and I, I fully expect the, the answer for CSAAA from a PR and comms perspective would be to turn around and go, no, we're not cooperating. We are not cooperating with government. We were going to try and find information to try and get an equitable solution here. And, and when the second the government or when the industry says we're not cooperating, the NDP could turn around and say, well, if the industry's not cooperating, we're going to legislate. And we're going to we're going to pass this new regulation that, that forces the industry to, you know, air quotes, be responsible for stuff. Um, and I mean, getting to Mr. Singh's comments. I don't understand how that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, all of this conversation about loopholes has been incredibly frustrating from the firearms industry's perspective because when he says, oh, the gun industry is making guns that, that take advantage of loopholes, I can tell you from the industry's perspective, 
those aren't loopholes. This is like tax stuff. When when it's it's like them saying, hey, if you've got kids and you claim that on your taxes, you're just taking advantage of a loophole. That's not true. You're complying with the law. The, the Firearms Act lays out exactly what guns are and are not legal, and the firearms industry in Canada responds to those laws by making guns that they prefer to be legal, and then they call it a loophole. It makes no sense. It is exactly like I said, the tax code. I mean, this entire industry is the most heavily regulated industry in Canada, and is, it makes no sense. No, and, and I kind of had a similar reaction when I heard Jagmeet Singh's comments yesterday. I thought, well, it wouldn't that be the same as well of, say, Chevy or any car manufacturer makes their cars so they fit with the Canadian code, the Canadian rules of cars on the roads. Somebody takes one of those cars, runs a stop sign and kills somebody. Do we go after the car manufacturer because they made the car something that could be on Canadian roads? No, of course not. That would be absurd. It would be ridiculous. But that's what they're doing, or that's what he's suggesting that they do here. And it's incredibly frustrating. This is where I'll say, as a, as a gun industry member that's also a father who lives in a downtown, downtown Kelowna, which has, you know, highest crime rate, unfortunately, in Canada these days, um, we seem to be getting farther and farther from the root cause or the root person responsible for these bad things. Like, when, I mean, to, to, to wake up, to be a member of the gun industry, like you said, your, your car analogy is fantastic. Because I woke up on the weekend to two kids trying to, you know, I've got a two and a half year old and a newborn. I'm barely sleeping. I'm trying to get through the day to day. And then I wake up and see a news article from the leader of the NDP saying that my industry, what I, what I make a living at, has to be held responsible for gun crime. And I'm sitting there going, I've never been responsible for a crime in my life. Like, I've got some speeding tickets when I was a kid, but, like, how am I responsible for any of this? And everyone I work with, every single colleague, they they don't sell guns to criminals. Like, it's, they sell guns to licensed people that, by law, get checked every day for criminal record. It, it's, it is, it's insane, and it's getting very difficult to separate that notion of why I'm being blamed from the notion of, why the people that are doing these crimes and getting out constantly are not being held responsible. And it's just, you know, at a day and age when we're seeing police officers and gun crime, all these crimes at all time highs for the leader of the, the chief supporter of our government to stand up and go, well, we're going to hold people that have nothing to do with that responsible is no wonder things are just going to get worse. But I do hope everyone realizes that. Hmm. Well, and, and I think the, the answer really is because it's easier. It's much easier to go after people who are legal law-abiding gun owners than it is to go after criminals and to figure out why criminals uh, have guns and, and why this is happening. But you said something interesting as well with, with the idea that this, so this contract with the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association to do this fact-finding mission. But if, if what we're saying is that this buyback program is for registered guns. It's for registered firearms that under this new list, now the government wants to buy them back. Don't they already know how many are are out there? I mean, sure, they don't know how many criminals are running around with guns, but they already know how many people, how many people in Canada have taken the course, have their gun license and have these guns, don't they? Uh, Not entirely. So there's 2.3-ish million licensed gun owners. Um, and that license is broken down to the restricted license and the, the non-restricted license. Restricted allows you to buy a handgun or an AR-15. Quite literally, the only rifle that is covered with the restricted license is an AR-15. Everything else falls under non-restricted or prohibited. Um, they only know where the AR-15s are and the handguns because those are the only registered firearms in Canada. So when they say there's 11,000 guns that, that they want to buy back at industry, I expect that to be literally just 11,000 AR-15s. Um, but the guns that they are that are included in the buyback program include much more than AR-15s. Includes everything that generates over 10,000 joules of energy at the muzzle. So that's every big game African rifle, 50 BMG long-range sniper rifle, that kind of stuff. Um, it includes a bunch of rifles like the Robinson Arms XCR, the Swiss Arms, a ton of the CZA 58s. Um, I mean, there's 1,600 firearms or 1,400 firearms in that original OIC that were named that are all included in this buyback. Um, so they don't know where the majority of those are because, to be quite honest, from rough industry estimates, uh, the government is grossly underestimating the number of the non-restricted guns that they prohibited by probably a factor of 10 or more. Hmm. 
so so where do you see this going next then like you said this is a contract with the, with this company with the, the industry to, to to try i suppose and answer these questions where do you see this going next uh i guess in, in it depends on the the particular theater in reality nowhere um this government is proven pretty incapable of doing things, to be quite honest. Um, they struggled to respond to the pandemic and get people vaccinated and whatnot in time. I, I don't see how uh, the government that struggled to do that and is now dealing with the massive public sector strike um, and with the massive police shortages around the country would be capable of um, seizing guns, because dare I say that perhaps there's no product harder to take from people that don't want you to take it from them than a firearm. Um, so it's a very difficult proposition that they're setting themselves up for. Um, moreover, I think this is probably just going to go down the political route. Um, C-21 is still quite early on. It still has to go through the Senate. Like, we're, we're still talking about the House of Commons. Um, and this has been such a controversial bill in the House of Commons, I can't imagine once it arrives at the Senate. And we're, we're weeks out from the summer break already. Right. Um, and by the time the summer break arrives in June, well, then we're, we're looking at the fall. And dare I say, we're probably talking about a fall election. So, you know, the likelihood of any of this kind of, you know, hitting the tarmac before the next election, it feels pretty unlikely to me. And moreover, even if it did, we've seen this government with this OIC. It's a three-year-old law that they're talking about still. These AR-15s that they're talking about buying back, they banned three years ago. You know, they keep pushing the uh, the extension farther and farther. The amnesty gets extended every year because they're not they're not ready. They they don't know how to do it. They don't know what to pay. They to be I don't I don't want to sound crass because it, it does sound incredibly crass. They don't have a clue. <laughs> I don't know what to say. They just don't seem to know what they're doing. All right. Well, Daniel, we will continue uh, bringing you back on the show and talking more about this. Like you said, uh, nothing uh, in the immediate future uh, is going to change. But thank you so much, uh, as always, for joining the show and for talking more about this. Hey, I'm always happy to be on, but I will admit, I really hope that maybe we can have less of these in the future. (laughs) 